G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. We're back from our winter break with two fantastic interviews with tech entrepreneurs who faced different ends of the same problem. Deb Noller is taking her Australian startup Switch Automation into the much larger market in the United States, while Jane Huxley is launching monster American startup Pandora into Australia. We're taking your Startup International on this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Braintree, the easy all-in-one payment solution for your app or website, and Getworm, the go-to crowdsourcing site for startups. Now, last year, I got to MC the Everything IoT conference here in Sydney. We haven't given a lot of coverage to the Internet of Things on Twista, and quite frankly, that's because there isn't that much going on with the Internet of Things in Australia, with the exception of Agritech. Now, that's what I thought until I was on that panel, because when I was on that panel, I got a chance to have a chat with Deb Noller, who's the CEO of Switch Automation, and I learned that, in fact, Australia has unexpected depth in IoT. So... Deb, welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So tell us about Switch Automation. Sure. So we're a software company um, headquartered here in Sydney, Mm. and we've developed a a software platform for the Internet of Things in buildings. So what that means is we integrate building management systems, uh, submeters, sensors, but we also do an enormous amount of just data ingestion. So mm-hmm. a lot of property data is kept in uh, spreadsheets mm-hmm. or it comes from third parties like uh, utility providers or it's outsourced to companies who might be doing property management or technicians or service providers that are doing neighbours registra- um, neighbors um, audits. So there's a lot of data that's typically just kept all over the shop. And we bring all of the data in, but then we also do this real-time uh, integration from things in buildings. So once you have all of this data from things in buildings, what do you get to do with it? It's really fantastic, actually. So it, the, our And cust- I just saw you really, really light up when you said yeah, that. It's yeah, really yeah. good to see that you're still excited it, about the I business. I am really excited because this is a, an, an industry where if you look at the way people have been managing buildings... It hasn't changed very much for the last 30 or 40 years. If you look at the systems that are in buildings Mm. and the way people manage those with an on-site facility manager Mm -hmm. and when there's a problem, you know, somebody has to ring up and say that they're hot or they're cold or that the plumbing's broken or the lift has broken down, typically it requires somebody to actually make a call and find somebody who will respond to that. Right. So what we're really interested in doing is taking data out of buildings and helping people to manage those buildings more proactively. Mm-hmm. So that means take um, looking at equipment that's not operating uh, at its optimum, mm-hmm. even though everybody in the, in the building might be perfectly comfortable mm-hmm. uh, and so there's no reason to call. Sometimes the equipment is actually operating completely inefficiently or even worse than that, it's actually operating in a way where the equipment is going to wear out or or break down faster. So we're about taking data and having people totally manage their buildings in a very proactive way, but not just a single building. 
where where our platform becomes so powerful is if you have a lot of buildings, mm-hmm. you'll have lots of different systems and you literally don't have the time to log on to 15 different building management systems, right. five different energy management systems, three different access control systems. And so we're actually allowing people to centrally manage huge portfolios of buildings. So some of our customers have more than 7,000 buildings in their portfolio. So these are large, large customers with big retail portfolios. And presumably you're saving them not just sort of time and aggravation, but you're actually saving them money because you're making all of these buildings run more efficiently. Correct. So everybody thinks this is about energy. And sure, energy energy and energy efficiency and energy savings is definitely one of the outcomes. But I look at those as being outcomes of running a really great business. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look at the real savings, they'll come in where you don't have to upgrade your equipment on some sort of planned cycle because you are able to know when that equipment actually needed to be upgraded Mm -hmm. rather than just doing it on a a planned maintenance cycle. Or um, a lot of our customers are really interested in how they make their people more efficient. So rather than somebody who's doing portfolio reporting, spending an entire month every quarter just doing what I call data wrangling, we're automating that data and putting it at their fingertips so that they can actually run analytics on that. And then they can start to look across their portfolio and see, well, these are my 50 worst buildings that are performing badly on an energy perspective and here's the 50 that are performing badly on a maintenance perspective and here's the 50 where we get the the biggest number of complaints and what's the intersection of those three different data sets Mm. and what's the things that we need to do as a company that addresses that so that's one of the things but also if you're going to send a mobile technician out to a building Mm -hmm. to fix something Mm. Is that the thing that they should be addressing or is that just the person that's screaming the loudest on the end of the phone? And if you are going to send a technician, how do you make sure that they've got all the parts that they need to fix that particular problem? So how do you triage that problem remotely before you send a technician? And then if a technician is going to, you know, do a four hour round trip out to a building, why don't you make sure they also address the five other things that are going on in that building? So it's really about people efficiency. Switch automation has been around for a little while because you didn't just grow all of this overnight, right? Correct. And that's why um, this platform that we've developed is six years in the making Mm -hmm. and we've spent close to $10 million developing this. So this is an enormous piece of tech. Mm -hmm. It's wide in the functionality. You know, it's got a really big breadth in the the functionality. We do data ingestion. We do real-time monitoring. We do a unified user interface. We do controls. We do fault detection and alerts. Um, Typically in anybody who's doing servicing the building industry, each one of those pieces of software that I just described would be a a different system. Right. But we've developed all of that into one single platform. So that's one of the reasons why this has taken a long time and, you know, cost a lot of money. And we've had a significant team on this for a long time. So how big is the company now in terms of employees? 38. Okay, that's a a fairly good size We're a reasonable size, yep. We've got nearly 8,000 buildings on our platform. Wow. Okay. All right. So but you actually founded the company back in 2005. And if you look at my co-founder and I, John and I actually met in Cairns uh, in 1992. And we were both working for a a software uh, development house in Cairns. Uh, We were both, um, for, for various reasons, just wanted to go and do something else. And so we actually set up a, a business and we were 
really successful really quickly. Mm-hmm. So we built uh, a really lucrative business. Uh, we were turning over $4 million a year. We had 36 employees, but it wasn't a scalable business. Okay. So I've always been obsessed with this idea of how do you build a super scalable global business. So that's kind of my obsession and, is and how is, do you do that? Is this mm-hmm. is switch automation designed specifically around being, I guess, that service layer that's then scalable to any property management? Software as a service. So we've built this software that can scale globally and it can bring on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of buildings and each of those buildings could have millions of data points. So the the, the platform's you know, infinitely scalable, both in the amount of data and the amount of customers and the amount of geographies. And it's not just buildings. We could actually apply our technology to a number of other market segments. At the moment, we've only got 38 people, so I dare not mm. go and investigate some other sectors. But if but you're going to do a mine, for example, exactly, or something like that. Exactly. So we actually have a, a company in California that's using our technology and tackling um, water wells, mm-hmm. you know, so these are remote water wells. It's legislated now that farmers that are taking uh, yes. underground water must report the amount of water that they're taking. Yes. And so that company is using our platform to report on the amount of water that's being taken out. All right. So what it sounds like, though, is when you started Switch Automation in 2005, you said, OK, everything we do has to be globally scalable. That That is a first principle of Correct. the business. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that you've had to approach what you're doing perhaps differently? Like you had to be more comprehensive in your thinking. You couldn't just sort of keep on adding patches. What it meant was when we started in 2005, the cloud wasn't here right? and IoT wasn't really talked about. Right. So we were doing Internet of Things, but not in, a, in the cloud. So we were doing Internet of Things in a local on-premise kind of way. Mm. Uh, and that's where I guess we cut our teeth on, you know, what does it take to build controls for a lighting system? You know, things like ramping light levels mm. or or audio levels on a volume Mm -hmm. um, controls. In 2009, we saw the cloud and we realized that that was going to give us an infinitely scalable infrastructure on which to base our business. And so we actually threw everything out and started all over again. So we've effectively been a startup twice over. How do you make a decision to throw away what you're doing and start again? Well, because we were self-funded and because I suppose John and I have been in business together for a long, long time. So there's an an enormous amount of trust and faith in that relationship. Mm-hmm. So we and we both know what we're good at. Uh, and so and we both are, have enormous respect for each other. So I actually made this really throwaway comment one day. I just said, our business is adopting cloud for, you know, our soft um, for our accounting and our project management and our help desk. Why aren't we in the cloud? Mm. I actually wasn't serious. It was just one of those kind of really ridiculous throwaway comments. But John, being John, uh, and he's quite brilliant. John, he went home, and so he actually uh, uh, rigged up this really quick test between our office and his house. So he put an IoT gateway in his house. He Mm. opened up a browser, but he was controlling um, a receiver back in our office. Mm. And so he and I both knew that 
if you couldn't get the latency right, right for doing controls of either lighting systems or or audio systems if you couldn't get that right then it would never work right. so he tested that in less than a week on a volume control and he he proved to me and then I did a back of the envelope it was literally one of those back of the envelope business plans where I said you know we could reposition this business as a SaaS model which is software as a service which is infinitely scalable as you know and so when we proved that the technology would work and I kid you not every single person around us thought we were absolutely bark raving mad you know start you know just crazy but John and I both had this just total belief that that was the right way to go. And because it was our business, self-funded, we had the we were allowed to do that. So we just said, well, we don't care. We believe this is the future. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci with a few words about Twista Series sponsors Braintree, code for easy online payments. Entrepreneurs around the world have used Braintree as a simple way to accept PayPal and credit cards and debit cards and whatever's coming next. With a single scalable integration, you get robust fraud protection on over 130 currencies around the world, making your global expansion a snap. And using Braintree, it's as easy as integrating a few lines of code, getting your business up and running fast. To learn more, visit braintreepayments.com twista. And we're back. We're talking to Deb Noller, the CEO of Switch Automation. All right. So you've just had this, I guess, wake up moment. You've thrown everything out. You're going to now start again. And during this process, you also now need to raise money to be able to create a SaaS business. Mm -hmm. uh, could you talk about that? How much money have you raised so far to make the business happen? We raised for the first time last year in 2015. So that was a deal led by Scale Investors who uh, invest in women-led businesses here in Australia. Uh, so they did the term sheet. The term sheet was great and the due diligence was great and the investment group was well um, respected. So it was very easy for us off the back of that term sheet to raise um, quite a bit of money. So we raised 1.3 million at the beginning of the year mm. and another 1.2 million at the end of the year. So 2.5 million Australian dollars in total last year. So that really gave us the growth capital to go from being just a technology team, a group of people that were developing technology, into a team that could actually execute on that technology. So we've been able to hire a salesperson, a marketing person, and then a full domain uh, uh, expertise team around building. So en energy engineers and mechanical engineers, people and a data scientist, people that can actually take our technology and, and put it into, into projects and really do some great stuff with it. Did it, was it easier for you to raise because they seen that you'd worked so hard over the last 10 years with, you know, basically being self-funded? Do you think that when they looked at you, they, they took that into account? I reckon that's probably a negative for most people because it, 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 what most investors are looking for is somebody who has come up with something and can show traction mm. quickly. That's what most investors are looking for. The longer you've been around, I think, is actually a negative thing. Um, for us, they probably looked at me and went, well, I think there's a couple of things. One, we had we had finally ca come to this really fantastic scalable business model mm -hmm. 
and we were getting traction with the right customers and they could see we were going global. So there was a number of things I think that lined up. I'm not sure that how long we'd been around was actually a factor in why they invested so in So not the ours. fact that you would have been so resilient that you were actually able to stay at this for 10 years. You don't think that that ticked a box for them? I think they could see that I was resilient. And I mean, that's anybody who knows me knows that I'm resilient. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm not sure that that was really why they would have invested in us. I think most investments are done on whether you, they really believe that you've got what it, you, the person, has got what it takes. Mm-hmm. To build this business and give them a return mm. and secondly do you have a product that's actually going to deliver on all of these promises that you're making and thirdly is the market attractive so unless you've got all of those things i mean just being around a long time i don't think is going to give you uh, an investment all right so where the business is now you're now glo- growing globally and you're spending most of your time in the u.s because is that now your growth market yes so we're not targeting the whole world yet because our team of 38 people uh is still you know a pretty significant tech team Mm. uh and there's you know 15 people in the business operations side of our business so we're really only tackling two markets just to prove that this is infinitely scalable and to show our traction uh, I would anticipate that we'll do a, a Series A fundraising round next January of somewhere between seven and fifteen million dollars. And that's for global. And marketing. then we then we'll uh, do our global, you know, expansion. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you so there's a there's a real plan here around how you can get to one level test and then get to the next level. Absolutely, we test. we fully expect that our platform will be the global standard for how people manage buildings within five years. It will be where people are wondering why you're not using Switch to manage your buildings. How big is that market? It's an enormous market. It's it's a $20 billion market just in building management systems. Mm-hmm. If you then expand that out into the whole IoT space, it, it's it's yeah, it's enormous. In, in the US alone, there's over 5 million commercial buildings. So are you the next Atlassian? Are you the next invoice to go? I would like to think so. I would like to think so. I mean, we certainly in our space, we're in quite a complex industry. Mm-hmm. It, you have to really understand the nuances of the industry the other technologies that are out there the fact that switch is actually born in the cloud it's not an old bms system that's been migrated into the cloud you have to understand that we're totally hardware agnostic so we can we can equally hook up a johnson control system with a schneider system Uh, there's a lot of nuances in there and unless you actually understand that you might not quite get just the gold mine that we're sitting on. But but when I hear that, as someone who would be thinking from an investor, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, look at all those lovely barriers to entry there, right? You, you can't get someone who's just going to pop out the gate solving all of the problems that switch automation is solving because what you're talking about is all the years that you spent building all of this technology. Mm-hmm. So, so a lot, you're right, a lot of investors don't get it and it's way too complex for them to peel off the layers to understand it. But when you do get people that have some sort of interest in this space, in this industry, mm. and uh, and know the other technologies that are in the market, they totally understand it. All right. The beginning of this series, we had Yvonne Everett on, mm-hmm. who is both a member of Scale as one of the Correct. angel investors. Mm-hmm. She also sits on your board. She does. And we had an amazing conversation about what it's like to be a director 
of an Australian startup company, and you are the CEO of that company. So what is your experience, I think, both working with the board on a regular basis, but you know, where do you see, particularly because you now have a board of an investor, so things changed last year, and that when you took investment, you get board members. How has that changed your own journey and your own role? It's certainly given me more people to consider because I have sitting behind our board is a whole bunch of people that have written checks and invested in our company. So I actually have a fiduciary duty to those people to run a, a ship shape business and to return them um, some sort of return. Mm. So I, I definitely take that on board. It's one of the reasons that I didn't take investment prior to last year. I wanted to make sure that we actually had a viable business with a viable technology in a viable market. Um, so definitely that's one of the huge considerations. Um, we've always operated this company as if it was going to t have investment so mm -hmm. we've always run a business that's incredibly clean there's no you know there's no personal expenses in there we know that you know that at some point in time somebody is going to basically un unravel every single transaction right. and inspect it so from that perspective there's not been any you know there's been no changes in the way we run our business um, the things that the board brings is a much more conservative attitude to risk than than a CEO has of a, of a startup. How so? Well, they they worry about things like, um, you know, if you uh, if you ran out of money tomorrow, right? How many how many months of liquidation cash do you need? Right. Whereas I don't think about things <laughs> like that. I, I I worry about can I make payroll next week? Right. Can I make payroll next month? Um, you know, so I'm just worried about a day-to-day -day cash flow. I'm not sitting here thinking about, well, if we wound up tomorrow, I would need three months worth of cash. So they bring a far more uh, regimented approach, I suppose, to things that are uh, that 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 the regular CEO wouldn't necessarily be, you know, be considering. So I guess some things have changed a lot, and some things not so much at all. Now, when it comes to, I guess the strategic decisions for where the company is going. Is that a conversation? Is that um, more you telling them? How does that actually work? And how do you sort of negotiate that? Because there are now all of these voices. Well, they invested in me yes. and they invested in our business. So, and we know way more about this market and the environment that we're operating in than anybody who's invested in our in our in our space. So in in many respects they have to they have to be relying on on our on our strategy because that's what they invested in. Mm. So I don't uh, we don't typically invite too much input on strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, we are much more interested in how our board can help us. Uh, now, with contacts now, and things like now, that. Or? Actually, the, the, so this is true. This is, I guess, as a CEO of a of a growing business, you have to think about the board for now and the and the board for. I would imagine over the next twelve months, when we take our Series A round, I actually think our board will change. Mm -hmm. I think our board then will become much more. 
appropriate's a bad word, but that they'll be more skilled and have more to offer us in terms of how we grow our business from a, you know, a $30 million business into a $300 million business, for example. It's the board you need for the exactly, task at hand. Exactly. And, and that's actually, I've met a few CEOs who've kind of beaten themselves up about, you know, they hired a consultant or they hired a, an advisor and then they let that advisor go because they weren't doing the right thing. And I've said, that's the journey. You you use, as as awful as this sounds, you, you take people on along the way that uh, that provide you with the advice and the input that you need at that time mm. but if you're doing a great job you'll outgrow them yeah. and then you'll need other people deb thank you so much for sharing your wisdom on this week in startups australia my pleasure thanks for having me Hi, this is Mark Pesci with a few words about Twista Sponsors GetWorm, the go-to crowdsourcing site for startups. Startups need early adopters, and GetWorm believes early adopters should be rewarded. So, if you're an early adopter, come and join a growing community of early adopters on GetWorm and get exclusive offers from the latest startups all around the world. The early bird gets the worm at GetWorm.com. What's it like to be on, well, if not quite the ground floor, maybe level one of the biggest tech startup of all time? We have a guest in our studio who is uniquely qualified to answer that question, not just once, but maybe if she's lucky, possibly twice. Jane Huxley is the CEO of Pandora Australia. Jane, welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Thank you. Now, before we talk about all the fun stuff going on with Pandora in Australia right now, we're going to jump into the Wayback Machine and go all the way back to, was it 1989? 89. So the Berlin Wall is about to come down. All this crazy stuff is happening. And you are about to take a job at, well, okay, it's not a little startup, but it's a little startup in Australia called Microsoft. That's right. What possessed you? Uh, you know, that's an interesting question, what possessed me, because I actually can't remember. Um, you know, the computers were not ubiquitous at the time. They were really something that, that was still in the realm of either programmers uh, and geeky kind of home studios and or very large corporations. So, you know, IBM, DEC, some of those massive uh, supercomputing powers were really starting to rise uh, into what turned out to be the peak periods of their times. Mm. And, you know, I, I was just kind of looking for a job and I could type. <laughs> and I can tell you that that is no way to get a job anymore in either a tech company or a startup. But I literally fell on my feet. I joined Microsoft in 1989. And there were a couple of things that were unusual at the time. Firstly, I joined uh, in the technical department. So I joined as a support engineer. Mm-hmm. Uh, had and, you had a technical background at that Oh, point? no, no, I could type. Uh, <laughs> okay. And I could read, and clearly I could fly by the seat of my pants very well. And actually, I distinctly remember being looked upon with great suspicion in the interview. And, you know, the guy that hired me said, well, I'm not really sure about you, but I'm prepared to give it a go. I'm going to give you a three-month trial. And so that was were- good enough for me probationary at Microsoft. I was probationary. And the second thing that was strange, of course, is that that I was a female, right? And so being uh, in technology was strange, right. but being a female in technology was downright weird. Yes. 
And I came How on many board. other women were there at Microsoft there at the were, time? There were some in the sales and marketing organization. Right. So there, I think there was about 40 of us in total in the company. But then. in the tech arm? Oh, no. There wasn't anybody there in the tech arm. So it was quite, I was oh quite the God. strange beast for a while there. And I came on board to support a product called DOS 5.0. I think that went on to the ARC back in the really olden (laughs) days. That's how how long ago it was. And so it it was quite strange because, I again, I I have very clear memories of answering the phone. I was doing the technical support. The phone would literally ring. The phone was fixed into a line that came out of the wall. It was bizarre. And, you know, we'd answer the phone, you know, Microsoft, this is Jane, how can I help you? I have a problem with my computer. Yes, this is technical support. This is Jane. How can I help you? I'm having a problem with my computer. Yes, I understand you're having a problem with your computer. How can I help you? You don't understand. I'm going to need to talk to a man. <gasps> Did that happen and, a oh, lot? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I worked with this guy. And, and gosh, I hope he doesn't remind me, uh, mind me using his name, Samuel Alani Vaitalfa, his name. We used to call him the King of Tonga. And uh, Sam was a, a very technical um, support engineer that I worked with. And so Sam would get on the phone and he would very respectfully say, you've got two choices. You can talk to Jane and she'll fix your problem or I can hang up. <laughs> and uh, and you don't hang up on the King of Tonga. You don't hang up on the King of Tonga. But also, you know, when I reflect back on my career now, I have always been supported by and respected by extraordinary men. Mm. And it started all the way back in 1989 mm-hmm. with, you know, my, my male colleagues at the time not accepting that women couldn't do the job that, that she was there to do. Absolutely. And to, just to sort of the end note on that, three months later, I was the employee of the month. And so wait, so at the end of your probationary right. period, you were employee yeah, I was of the employee. month. And the reason that I was the employee of the month is because as a woman, I've walked in there. It was so disorganized. They couldn't see north from south. There was stuff everywhere and it just took a little bit of a clean eye and a bit of organisation and I sorted those men out in 90 days <laughs> and got declared the employee of the month and uh, and thus, you know, my, my career in this, this great startup in inverted commas started. Okay, but the interesting thing is 1989, now I remember and I'm working as an engineer in Cambridge uh, engineering department had one woman, and I remember the boss saying, "Now we're we're gonna hire Mimi." So every, all the other male engineers were like, "Oh my god!" Now Mimi was in fact the boss's wife, but it turns out actually she was as good, a, if not a better engineer, than any of us. So yeah, it all worked yeah. out. But I mean, again, it, it's that kind of mm. culture. Mm. But I also remember around that same time, walking around the office one day, and and someone saying, "Hey, come take a look at this." and I was like, what is this? He says, this is the new version of Windows, Windows 3.1. Yeah, yeah. And that was the tipping point, not just for Microsoft, yep. but definitely for Microsoft, but yeah. for the entire field. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, you are now not just working at Microsoft, you are now strapped onto the biggest rocket ship that has ever yeah. happened in technology. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, so I, I moved on from product support, became a systems engineer for a while, which was really product support, but customer facing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, started to move, you know, more broadly. Once you're in front of a customer, you kind of have to do whatever you're there to do. And one of the things that I do remember from that time is that Microsoft was a challenger in every single category that we were in. 
So, you know, it was Word Which is Perfect. Not, we do not think about Microsoft no, in those terms. There, were, there was no winning to be had at Microsoft back then. Uh, and even DOS was being challenged, you know, by IBM. Uh, by OS2. Uh, and, OS2, you yeah. know, and I'm still apologising to the Commonwealth Bank for putting OS2 in there all those years ago. Um, you know, they, they were challenging in every category. And, and these were big brands, WordPerfect, yeah. Lotus, yeah. Uh, you know, Notes, that we were, we were second everywhere. Yeah. And I think people, as you say, forget that that was a massive challenging period in Microsoft's history. And I still refer to it as the best business school ever. And the thing that I took from there that I still use today at Pandora is to get your head down and be very, very focused on what number one looks like. Don't get distracted by the noise. Don't get distracted by by the competitors. You need to name and aim your target. And I can tell you at Pandora, if I can have more active listeners between the hours of 7 and 9 a.m. on a Wednesday morning in Sydney Metropolitan, we will win. And that that naming and aiming of the target, Mm -hmm. what specifically is the Achilles heel in the competitor that you are aiming for? Get your head down, go for it, and do not look up until you get there. And I think that it was that sense of focus at Microsoft in those early days that eventually ended in Microsoft being number one in pretty much every category Mm. that they were competing in. Mm. And that was an extraordinary skill set. We worked incredibly hard. You know, when I left there 16 years later, I had nine months of annual leave owing. And I don't say that. Exactly. And I don't say that, you know, with a sense of, oh gosh, isn't it? Look how hard we worked. Yeah. We were having such fun mm. and we were so engaged in the mission mm-hmm. that the leave thing never was really, you know, important to us. And neither was the whole stock and equity thing. You know, these these envelopes with stock certificates in them used to arrive and we didn't know what they were. So we just used to put them in our desk drawers. And that went on, Mark, for five or six years because Australian companies receiving equity, that was out there back in 89 and every employee got it. So these things would come and stock certificates were paper back then. It wasn't electronic. So I've got to say like I'm 100. We used to put them in the bottom drawer. And then eventually, like five or six years in, somebody figured out what they were. (laughs) Hey, guys, guys. like oh my god have we still got them and and <laughs> don't they're still they're on it's the register so it's okay they're on the register and actually do you know i, I still have some of those paper certificates today uh, because you frame some of them and i have i framed the 10 that i got for my 10th anniversary at microsoft but i mean that was they were just crazy days right you'll never see anything like that again but when i reflect on startups today there will be crazy stories 20 years from now, you know, when, when the next generation comes through and says, oh, my God, did you really do something that way or did you really think that way? And it's just nice to get to a point where you can reflect a little bit on where you've been and also to think about what those key things were that you did learn that stay with you for the remainder of your career. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. During our episodes, you'll hear us referencing things. I'm referencing an article by Kevin Kelly in my interview with Jane Huxley. I always take photos of the guests. All of this ends up on our Tumblr 
at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. You'll also find links to all of our old episodes, lots of interesting other information that will help you on your journey as an entrepreneur. So check it out at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. And we're back talking to Jane Huxley. You're, are you CEO or Managing Director of Pandora? I am technically the Managing Director because, you know, we are a proprietary limited here. Right. Uh, and therefore, I'm the Managing Director of the company here locally and also in New Zealand. Okay. Now, Pandora is a huge property in the United States. Streaming radio, it sort of owns that market. Mm-hmm. You, Pandora decided it wants to come into Australia. Mm-hmm. How did you even hear about this and think, oh, this is going to be something that I want to do? Well, you know, I did and I didn't. I, I had, uh, I was in my, I'd left my role as the chief executive officer at Fairfax Digital in a restructure that that company did. And I sort of thought, you know, I, I, I'm going to just have a little bit of time out and then I'm going to figure out what my next thing is going to be. Mm. And in figuring out what my next thing was going to be, I knew that I I didn't really care what industry or what company, but I could describe the type of company that I wanted to look for. So I was looking for a multinational company. I'd always worked in multinationals. Fairfax was an Australian company which suited me when I had small children. Uh, But I wanted to get back into the multinationals where you're just exposed to a lot more different thinking and cultures and, and it's a really kind of motivating way for me to be working. I wanted to run it. You know, I'd been the chief executive at Fairfax and it turns out that I really like to be in charge. And it's very hard to not be in charge <laughs> it's once addictive. you've been in charge. Exactly. Um, I wanted to be inspired by the company that I was working for and the mission. And I loved Fairfax, but I can't say it was an inspirational journey for me to be there. Um, having worked in companies like Microsoft, that's what I was looking for. And there were a few other things that I that I had on my list. Eventually, a recruiter phoned me and uh, I'd had a coffee with this person and, and she said, I think I've found your job. Uh, just to cut a long story short, 178 candidates, last one standing. and, uh, and Thunderdome. A Thunderdome. I can see you all Absolutely. covered in blood and smiling. And yeah, and knee pads and elbow pads. <laughs> and you know, so I still get those out uh, sometimes. <laughs> but, but the tipping point for me was when I went over to San Francisco and I met the founder, Tim Westergren, who's now our chief executive officer. And I was a bit one each way, you know, in the plane over there. I was like, oh, yeah, it's good. Could be interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I met him and found out what the mission of the company was and what the view of where we think music is going to be in the next 10 or 20 years, mm-hmm. there was no question that this was the company that I needed to join and that I needed to run and start for Australia. So he showed you that he knew where he was going. His authenticity and passion. Uh, you know, you don't hear those in the you know, in a CEO conversation very often. Um, That's what really got me across the line. But yes, his view, when you have a founder that is solving their own problem, Mm -hmm. there is a very clear connection Mm -hmm. to, and and also not just a clear connection, but they don't forget. And so many companies get confused along the way about what the initial problem was that they're trying to solve. Tim himself was a musician. He wanted to find a way for musicians to make a living out of what they love to do. Mm-hmm. And his view is, you know, this is a great world if we can all love what we do every day. Right. I think most of us agree with that. But musicians, as we know, have struggled to make money since the dawn of ages. Uh, and in fact, I would expand that to say a lot of people in the creative arts. Oh, absolutely. And, and he wanted to find a way where they could not be baristas and bank tellers and... Mm-hmm 
and bus drivers and you know they Who you will wanted buy my to do shots, that though if you guys are successful well that'll be the ex bankers <laughs> <laughs> fair enough so so and and that's what he wanted to do and and it remains a really core part of our mission today it turns out that you've got to have a lot of scale and make money mm. before you can get to that and about 2 years ago our really our thoughts and our minds at pandora really turned back to this artist community and really focused on bringing them tools and connections that they can use to make a living out of doing what they love. And that's everything from, you know, a, a essentially a micropayment for mm-hmm. the stream of a single track to a single listener, mm-hmm. all the way through to $500 concert tickets, mm-hmm. merchandise, yeah. digital downloads, you know, anything from a free listener, a casual listener, all the way through to a die-hard, rusted-on, right. passionate invested music lover. So this is very much, um, you must be familiar with Kevin Kelly's 1,000 True Fans, yep. which was later adapted to 5,000 True mm-hmm. Fans. So this is very much the implementation mm. of that. And we will link to that essay on Tumblr because it's a, it's a fundamental essay in understanding this. So what Pandora is doing is saying, okay, yes, we think that's the future. Let's build the framework to connect artists to their fans in this way. Absolutely. And, of course, every fan or every listener on Pandora is logged in. So we know who you are and where you are, et cetera, et cetera. You're supposed to sort of rub your hands together when you say that. And go, ha, ha, ha. Um, Actually, the listeners are really the core of our business, and I'd probably spend more time worrying about them than the other stakeholders, the advertisers, et cetera. Um, well, if you don't have them, you you've got, got nothing, you've right? Got nothing, yeah. yeah, you get into that circular argument though, which we do regularly um, at Pandora. But but you know, notwithstanding, it is really the fans are the currency almost in the system for musicians, which are, you know is what this essay sort of refers to. Um, we also know who you're thumbing on Pandora, and as soon as you hit a thumb up mm. or station start, you declare yourself a fan. Mm-hmm. So you're now a fan, and we know who you are. Mm. When we have a musician that's spinning on Pandora, we can connect that musician directly to their fans. We bought a ticketing company last year in the US Ticketfly. Last week on Pandora, we started delivering venue and artist messages directly to fans for the bands that they love playing within a 50 kilometer radius of their home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, within the first two days, you know, we're starting to see phenomenal results. That little value add for listeners, that frustration when a band you love just left town. Yeah, yeah. You know, we and, all know and that feeling. that's the problem we're trying yeah. to solve for the listener. And then for the artist, fill the venue, mm. you know, get the fans in there because it is the fan that will spend money. Yeah. The casual listener yeah. was never going to. Yeah. Now, we know with a casual listener, they will still be the largest percentage out there in music terms. And, and if we can monetize them for something, yeah. then that's good as well. Yes. So that's kind of part of our strategy and, moving forward. And the casual listener is also the one who's going to tell someone else, yeah. oh, I've heard this really good track, who then may become that insane fan too, exactly right? right? So it's still that viral element. Though. Very much so. All right. You were employee number one. Number one. Of Pandora yeah. Australia. Yeah. And you're entering a market where Pandora means something else here. The jewellery company. Let's just say it. Shiny little charms. So how do you deal with that to start with? Well, I started in November and in December, my husband's running around our house with glee saying things like, I have just bought you the best Christmas present ever. And I'm thinking, oh God, no. It's Pandora jewellery. (laughs) The man's finally stumbled on a genius (laughs) gift for his wife. 
And uh, and now what I found out about that is that you can't return jewellery back to Pandora, the jewellery company. Uh, but I knew I had a challenge on my hands around the branding piece specifically. So what you do, you know, when you're starting out, you get a pair of flat shoes, you get a pair of heels, you get an iPad and a handbag, mm-hmm. and you hit the streets. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I just went out there and started talking and talking and, you know, using my network and basically begging anybody that I knew, you know, could I come and talk to you about Pandora? Mm-hmm. The nice thing about Pandora is that people love the product. They right. don't just like it, they love it. Right. And as we started to grow, you know, I'm, I'm at home in my home office, you know, doing in my pajamas on these calls at 3 and 5 a.m. And I could see the numbers growing and growing and growing. And, and very quickly, you know, we were at 8,000 registered a week, 10,000, 20,000 registered users a week as I left my house to move into a service office six months later. Mm. And the way that it worked was fascinating in that we knew that if we could get a, a registered user to download Pandora and start two stations in the first seven days, you know, that initial phase and the two stations was to show us that you knew what you were doing. Right. First station's easy. Second station, oh, okay, it really does do anything. Seven days, two stations, on average, recruited eight more listeners for Pandora. And so, that's so the magic formula. it's the magic formula. Well, actually, that's the outcome of the magic mm. formula. I used to call it the great Amway of radio apps. <laughs> it was just growing and growing. Right. But the magic formula of Pandora was personalization. Mm. We know you plus discovery. We know music you're going to love that you've never heard of. So it was the combination of personalization plus discovery mm-hmm. and that very human sort of behavior that is in all of us since we're born, which is when you discover something new, you feel compelled to share it with somebody you know, another human being in person. I found this great coffee shop. Oh, yeah. I went to the restaurant, ate this great steak. I, I found this track. shoe, blah, blah, blah. I found this amazing app and you must try it. Yeah. And it's that discovery, that tapping into the human behavior. That's what grew Pandora. Uh, and we kind of rode that wave for, for the first two years. All right, let's tie all of this back together. From your experience at Microsoft, what are you now bringing to your experience at Pandora? What did you learn from working at the bottom level of a company that's now helping you at the top? Boy, I, you know, probably three things. Um, it's that focus that we talked about earlier on, right? So, and in terms of focus, the key point there was not getting distracted. Right. Pandora was the 24th music streaming company in Australia, <laughs> right. as well as the jewelry company. Right. So 25 competitors <laughs> in all. Don't get distracted by some of them. They're deep pocketed. Uh, They make a lot of noise, but what you need to do is you need to define your position on the landscape, Mm -hmm. which is independent and unique, and defend it. Mm -hmm. And so I took the passive listening non-music lover, or aka a busy person, and chose them as the target. I'm not after the music lovers, I'm just after busy people who like music to be in the background. And so I took that position and defended it fiercely for Pandora for the first two years, and nobody else was in that spot. And that was very different from the positioning in the US where people had grown up mm. Pandora mm. and they could not understand the issue with the jewellery company here at all. <laughs> so that focus and that defence was uh, a really critical thing that I learned. The second one, and I continue to learn this the hard way, it's all about the people. You've got to get the best of the best around you 
and you've basically got to get them in the tent. You know, you've got to work with them and for them. You have to serve them. You have to lead them. And so being able to be that chameleon to run the business but to be in the business at the same time, Mm. that's a very delicate balancing act. And look, I, I still make mistakes. I think everybody does. The people piece is not to be underestimated. And it's also great to admit that everybody gets that wrong. There isn't a single founder, you know, or startup or uh, established company that I have spoken to and I meet regularly with a group of CEOs in similar positions to mine across, you know, Australia and New Zealand now. And when we sit down and have dinner, we're always talking about people. Mm. And, and that's a great thing, but it also just goes to show what a significant challenge it is and will always yes. remain. Yes. You know, people, people are complicated. they're complicated and very unpredictable. Um, And then, you know, really the third one was around the hard work and the discipline. Um, It's a lot of fun, but you do need to be really disciplined. So, you know, I say to people that join Pandora, I have a crystal clear vision of what success looks like in one year, in five years. I have absolutely no idea how we're going to get there. And that's why I've got to hire great people. What we do every day, how we climb the mountain, I have no clue. And I'm really good with that. I don't need to know what the people do that report to me. Mm. I just need to lead them. And so I think that sense of having a very clear picture of what success looks like, but being prepared to just get down and work really hard to get there, it's something that's synonymous you know, with established companies and startups and, and anybody who's just really focused on being successful. Jane, thank you so much for joining us on This Week in Startups Australia. <laughs> Both Deb Noeller and Jane Huxley have been working in startups for more than 20 years. Now, they've taken very different paths, but what we've heard from both of them is a lot of the same lessons learned. First and foremost, focus on your goals for your business. Don't worry about the competition. Don't worry about anything except doing what it takes to reach your goals. And as Deb made perfectly clear, sometimes to reach your goals, you have to take the business you've already built and rip it apart. So you have to be both focused and brave if you want to succeed. And it will take time. Don't be afraid to be one of those 20-year overnight success stories. Keep your head down and work hard. Big thanks to Twister sponsors Braintree and Getworm. Their support makes this podcast possible. Thanks to Felix Wormuth and AnalogCabin.net for his hard work engineering a podcast that's a joy to listen to. Thanks to Deb Noller and Jane Huxley for making time to come on our show. We'll be back in a fortnight talking about what happens when fintech collides with agritech. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia. <laughs>